1: Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in Latin American Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Ethan Besser-Frederick, a host of the channel, and today we'll be talking to Margaret Chowning, a professor at UC Berkeley, about her new book, Catholic Women and Mexican Politics, 1750 to 1940. Hello, and thank you for joining me today.
0: Thank you so much for inviting me.
1: Margaret, before we begin, could you tell us a little bit about your research interests and how you came to write this book?
0: Sure. Um, I uh, This is my third book. Uh, it was meant to be my second book. Um, after I wrote the book that came out of my doctoral dissertation, I uh, had this idea in mind to approach the topic of Mexican politics from a kind of unusual, unconventional angle, uh, that is through a study of women and the church. In my first book, I had done the same thing with a study of, uh, liberal politics through, uh, economic and social history. So, um, this was kind of, uh, a, what I thought of as, uh, a continuation of my work in my first book. Um, But I didn't really know what I meant by women in the church. Uh, The only thing that the, the first thing that occurred to me is that um, women in the church would surely be nuns. So I went to the archive in Morelia, Michoacán, the cathedral archive and, uh, asked for the boxes on uh, female convents. And uh, before long, I began uh, seeing a different book emerge, (laughs) uh, which turned out to be uh, my second book, which was called Rebellious Nuns, The Troubled History of a Mexican Convent. And uh, that was a detour, a fairly significant detour. It was a really fun book to write, um, and I hope it has been a, a fun book for people to read. But it prevented me from returning to this book on Catholic women for quite a few years. So I guess that book was published in 2006, so I came back to this one in uh, 2007, probably. Um, And as you know, Ethan, from uh, being a historian yourself, uh, historians are pretty slow. So uh, 2007 to 2023, probably about par for the course. (laughs) Um, I ended up not including nuns in this book since I had just written a book about nuns and uh, so this book uses as its kind of unit of analysis the the thing that I was sort of looking out for in the archives uh, voluntary Catholic associations. So the the title says Catholic women, um, but it, more precisely, it's uh, in in most of the cha- in most of the chapters five. Of the eight chapters, uh, it's Catholic women in uh, uh, cofradías or um, lay associations. Um, the other three chapters uh, are more about uh, Catholic women, kind of generally Catholic women in uh, in politics. Though I still try. Uh, as hard as I can to link that story of Catholic women in politics back to the Catholic uh, lay associations. So that's how this book came about. It was not an accidental book, but it was a delayed book.
1: Well, I think every historian, even if it doesn't turn into a book project, can appreciate Uh, that sometimes you just need to follow what you find in the archives and finding those nuns. I think uh, no one begrudges you that.
0: (laughs) (laughs) For sure. Yeah, that was too good a story to not uh, give it its own book.
1: So let's take a look at the introduction. The introduction makes a couple of important framework arguments, and one of the important ones that that mattered a lot to me was challenging the Whiggish version of Mexican history, if I can call it that, that casts the church as just a mere roadblock to progress, and I think this falls into the great set of literature on Mexican history and Latin American history that makes a more complex picture. You also set up one of the driving tensions of the book, that Mexican women have often been found have often found political and social power within a Catholic faith that explicitly denies them leadership roles. And this contradiction is one of the driving, I think, sort of feelings and moods of the book, if nothing else. So I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about this contradiction and what brought you to it or how you saw it play out in the book.
0: Yeah, that's a good, uh, that's a good um, uh, identification of a major uh Paradox. I guess we're all we are all looking for interesting paradoxes to explode or explore, right? And that's um, the my discovery that uh, uh, the mid-century church uh, found itself in such a, a difficult position that it was more or less required to allow women to assume leadership of, um, uh, lay associations was an exciting, um, and to be honest, unexpected, uh, discovery. Um, it's a little bit of an interesting story. Uh, so, uh, I think the listeners might be um, interested in my, First encounter with the ladies of the Vela Perpetua, which is um, a, a lay organization that uh, listeners from Mexico will certainly know. Um, uh, many of many friends of mine have told me their grandmothers were members of the Vela Perpetua, and that they used to go with their grandmothers to the churches to. Uh, sweep and clean and do a little bit of praying along the way it's always i've i've always heard of it and known of it and thought of it as a totally innocuous uh organization um a little stodgy uh, a little very conservative uh so in when i found fairly early in my research uh, a document that started off um we, the ladies who sign below, uh, are forming a new association uh, that uh, basically said in the first couple of sentences, only women will be allowed to be the officers of this association. And I looked at it, uh, and I got out a figurative um, uh, magnifying glass to be sure that I was reading "señoras" instead of "señores," <laughs> and I—I, I, it was a total surprise. Um, and then, as I kept going in that box of materials, I found other uh, excitement in nearby towns uh, that uh, in, had seen this organization formed, it was in San Miguel, uh, San Miguel de Allende, uh, and wanted one of these new organizations for themselves. So that was uh, that tension that you referred to between um, a Catholic church that feels very um, almost misogynistic and this discovery that In 1839, the Catholic Church was allowing women to lead, uh, take on leadership roles in uh, important local uh, associations was uh, sort of changed the whole uh, thrust of of the book. I had found my paradox in a way.
1: Uh, Well, I I think that that appears wonderfully throughout the book, and that's something I think we'll come back to as we talk about the rest of the chapters. Mm -hmm. The book itself is divided into three parts, and the first has to do with the periods immediately before and then during and after independence and framing how this event does and doesn't change practice religion and gender. The first chapter situates this period by examining gender roles and urban cofradías in the last years of colonial rule. So, could you tell our leader, readers a little bit about these cofradias? You've already described them a little bit, but uh, maybe expand on that. And what role gender played in them uh, at the end of the colonial period? Right.
0: So, uh, cofradias or Catholic lay associations um, were important uh, in both indigenous uh, villages, which is where maybe some of your more expert listeners will. Uh, recognize uh, them, their their presence and their importance uh, after the conquest, as a way to sort of bind the indigenous population to the to the the Catholic Church and to the state. Um, but uh, Catholic lay associations, as logic will tell you, also existed in urban areas. So this book is about urban cofradías uh, and. Um, it uh, uh, is, that chapter is based on um, it, archival material, uh, several different kinds of uh, records that might give me an insight into gender balances in the cofradías, which I had assumed to be mainly male. Um uh, It's the men in the cofradias who show up in most archival records. But if you find the kind of stuff that I was looking for, membership lists, um, records of of fee collectors, and probably the most interesting and fun documents that I used uh, to get at the question of how many women were actually in these cofradias before... uh, independence, uh, were the um, uh, patentes, they're called. Those, these are uh, certificates that when you joined a cofradia, you were given by the treasurer of the cofraria. And they were forms that the treasurer filled in your name uh, and you then had this record that you had paid the initial fee to join usually not very much. And then the treasurer also kept a record every time you paid fees on the back of it to be sure that when you died, uh, you were up to date in your payments and you were a member in good standing. So there are all these. And then when you died, you turned them back in to the treasurer. So this is kind of a long way of saying that this is these documents take up Huge amounts of space in archives, uh, and they they don't look like much because they're just form letters uh, or form uh, printed forms. But because they have the name of the person in uh, written in by the treasurer, you can uh, usually tell men from women, and m- almost always the treasurers were very careful to write doña maria josefa fulano whatever and uh, or don so that you can also tell something about whether these were uh, elite members of the cofradía or not so i spent a lot of time just pa- just paging through <laughs> those uh, great piles of patentes that i don't think anybody else has used um and uh, I was able to uh, develop gender profiles for a, a fair number. I, I think a, a, an economist would say a, a statistically significant number of coferias, uh in both Mexico City and in, um, uh, in the provinces. And uh, the pattern was very clear. That no matter where you were, no matter whether you were in an elite cofrad an elite cofraria, which I defined as one with more than fifty percent dons and donas, uh, or not, um, the uh, the the women constituted not just a significant portion but a majority. Of the members of the cofradia, so this is another thing that I think um, is is pretty surprising. Uh, research in uh, Europe on cofradias is beginning to turn up more um, all female cofradias or some leadership female leadership of cofradias, but it still is it's pretty it's pretty spotty, and so. This is good, this is really good documentation for Mexico of uh, this pattern of um, female excitement about belonging to the cofradias. I had to speculate in that chapter uh, a little bit about why this was the case, what was the particular appeal for. Uh, women especially what I called independent women women who were joined not as members of a household but as uh, you know a pastry seller or a, um, uh, so um, it's the, the archival record is does not uh, give us great answers as to why but I tried to, uh, understand female and male roles within the cofradías in a way that, uh, that respected these decisions made by women to turn over uh, fees that for elite women were not very much, but for non-elite women were, uh, uh, there was a significant financial decision. Therefore a decision that I felt had to be uh, Respected, and I argued that there were um, limited roles for women. They were not allowed to be uh, officers. Um, they probably didn't vote, although that's sort of an an unclear um, point. Uh, they, but they did have important roles in maintaining. Um, taking care of the object to which the uh, cofreria was dedicated, the image in the church. Um, and uh, I, I think that the the colonial background of uh, enthusiastic participation in the cofradias is an important part of the story of trying to understand where, the Vela Perpetua and other female led cofradias after independence comes from. So that was chapter one. It's, it's an, in a a lot of ways, it's a background chapter, but it's a background chapter that was based on uh, these archival discoveries that, um, uh, that set the stage, I think particularly well in a way way that just uh, a review of the secondary material wouldn't have, wouldn't have done.
1: I think that this chapter is also, like, like you've just touched on, is a is a great example of executing what can sometimes be difficult, both for modern and then maybe for non-devout historians and readers, which is taking the things these women do seriously and respectfully,
0: and yeah, imagining that there's a good reason. I think that's important. I'm, um, I'm, perhaps it will be a surprise to learn. I'm not a religious person at all. <laughs> and uh, so uh, sometimes the behavior of the women in, that I met in this archival research was uh, befuddling to me. <laughs> um, and, uh, and I think that part of the fun of writing it, part of the, the, Part of what made it meaningful for me to write it was trying to understand uh, and respect where they were coming from.
1: Well, let's take a look at the second chapter, where in some ways this, this all sort of falls apart. I mean, it'll continue to fall apart in the reform, but the second chapter studies how these cofradías are affected by the revolution and by independence. So what sort of regional and gender patterns did you notice and in how independence did and didn't affect them?
0: Right. So um, here I I, um, could have used more better secondary material that was uh, very regional in terms of um, the impacts of independence, uh, financial impacts of independence, because this is uh, the clear explanation for, just to jump ahead a little bit, for the rise of the uh, female-led associations was uh, a failure of the old cofredias, and it was a financial failure. I don't think that it was a um, result of greater male impiety than female impiety. It wasn't even really a result of men um, becoming less religious, I think, Uh, but it was a result of uh, men being less interested in leading associations uh, because they had become so difficult to lead in light of the destruction of uh, that accompanied the insurgency and the um, financial difficulties experienced by many cofradías. So, but you you asked, and I think this is a really important part of this chapter um, about the regional dimensions of this. And um, building on uh, some of my colleagues who have who have made a stab at understanding. The insurgency uh, regionally. Uh, there was an overlap between the places where I saw the cofreias failing, uh, the traditional cofreias failing in uh, in every way, and the places where uh, there was. Presumably, the most destruction and the most uh, financial hardship as a result of the insurgency, which is roughly the Bajio uh, and for, and points farther south into Michoacan, into parts of uh, of Jalisco, where the um, fighting in, endured longer, where it was uh, highly destructive, where uh, parts of Mexico where that were linked to the silver mines, which, as everybody knows, were very uh, seriously uh, and negatively affected by the insurgency. So the regional patterns of what happened to the traditional cofradias, I think, map onto um, the uh, regional patterns in what happened to wealth and to uh the Hacienda to the silver mines to manufacturing in the context of the insurgency. Um, so that chapter is, um, spends a good bit of time developing that, <clears throat> developing that, that regional dimension, but it also pays attention to um, Gender uh, and what happens when the traditional cofradia fails, and I argue that it was largely a failure of um, of leadership. As I said before, that it was not um, uh, a sudden uh, loss of. Faith on the part of men so much as it was a loss of interest in uh, leading these cofradias that were now likely to cost them a lot of money out of pocket because uh, the cofradias, the way that they functioned, uh, required uh, pretty large expenditures every year to pay for. the celebrations that were associated with the cofradia, but also to pay for, um, in in the case of many cofradias, not all, but many, uh, the death benefits that were um, uh, that were paid out by the cofradia to members, which is why the treasurer kept those patentes that we talked about in the context of. Chapter one, so that people could prove they were members in good standing and could collect death benefits, which were substantial. Um, so, those older traditional cofradias just uh, needed more money than they were taking in in the context of the post 1810 uh, economic uh, depression. Um, so the back to the gendered uh, elements of the uh, collapse of the cofradías, they became uh, uh, basically, in a nutshell, they became even more female dominant than they had been during the uh, colonial period. In the colonial period, it was. We're sort of 59, 60% uh, women. And um, in uh, the 1810s and 1820s and 1830s, uh, the proportion average of uh, female membership rises to around uh, 68, 69, 70% women. Um, But the women were who remained in these cofradías were hamstrung. They didn't have the leadership roles. They still depended on men for that. Uh, they didn't have. Um, they were not the the business managers. They didn't have access to the funds. They were, mm-hmm. I'm inferring, uh, frustrated, and hence the. Uh, Invention or sort of reinvention of uh, a kind of cofradia that was, um, uh, didn't invest in property, didn't lend money, was not, uh, was a much simpler operation financially, uh, and that uh, could be um, run. And they thought should be run by uh, women, which is the story of chapter three, most of which I've already told in the context of the rise of the Vela Perpetua. This this chapter accounts for that uh, phenomenon. And it also uh, accounts for the increasing presence of women in other kinds of of uh, cofradías um, in uh, in 19th century Mexico, but the vela perpetua is the one that is sort of strikingly original, strikingly uh, copyable, <laughs> uh, and spread like uh, like wild, wildfire, um, to use a, a cliche.
1: I think that this dynamic of the, the to, to use your terminology the failure of male leadership is also going to appear throughout this text and it will appear especially in the chapter mm-hmm. title for chapter 8 which, which we'll get to when we do mm-hmm. but I think is fantastically titled
0: great, yeah so um, uh, chapter 4 then um, changes uh, changes uh, Direction; Um, it changes in the sources that I use, and uh, it uh, begins a process of trying to link um, uh, Catholic women's political actions, to which I'll return in a minute, to this rise of the of the cofradías. In other words, um, I'm positing a link between this explosion of female-led uh, lay associations in the 1840s to um, a pattern of female petitioning that uh, was first noted in 1849, but then uh, really becomes a, a, a phenomenon uh, remarked upon in uh, the liberal press and the Catholic press and debated uh, uh, at great length uh, in the uh, public sphere in 1856. Uh, so these, uh, f- these petitions have been um, noted by historians, by a couple of historians before me. I wasn't the one to... Discover them, but I think that um, my attempt to put them in the context of changing relationships between women and the Catholic Church is uh, is unique um, and. The studying the, I I do a a little bit with analysis of the petitions themselves, trying to understand what it was that women were uh, looking for. I speculate about uh, authorship because that's been the main theme in writing about these uh, women's petitions has been, were they really written by women or were they not? Because as you can imagine, the liberal press was convinced that they were uh, written by priests and that women had absolutely nothing to do with them, which is not implausible. Mm -hmm. Uh, And in fact, after a a lot of uh, analysis of those petitions and thinking about them, I I do think that uh, it was a collaborative effort between priests and women. I don't think that I want to... uh, I I certainly don't want to uh, assume that women were incapable of writing these petitions because I know from my research on uh, women's correspondence uh, in the context of the lay associations that they're entirely capable of doing this, but I'm not sure that they did. Mm -hmm. Um, And, uh, but I'm also convinced that they were not, oblivious, that they were not simply signing petitions that had been written by priests without even knowing what was the context of them. And I'm absolutely convinced that women were the ones who circulated the petitions in order to get a large number of signatures on them. Um, Sometimes in analyzing petitions or thinking about who wrote them, we tend to ignore the fact that the main importance of a petition is that a lot of people sign it. (laughs) Um, And the responsibility for uh, collecting signatures was, to me, clearly uh, an area where these new women-led lay associations had a role to play. Now, the role that they played is nowhere, um, uh, provable. <laughs> uh, there are hints, there are suggestions. Um, but the whole point of the petition is to get a lot of, sig- a lot more signatures than just the number of people in your association. You go around and you try to get, uh, si- sign up as many people as you can. So these were not petitions written by, uh, X, uh, Pious association. They were uh, written by the the ladies of X town, is the way that they were presented. So it's not, um, as I say, it's not that link that I sought. Is uh, I'm personally satisfied <laughs> that uh, that there was a connection, but it's um, and, and I try to be pretty honest in. Uh, this chapter and also chapter six, where I encounter the same problem, I try to be pretty honest with the reader and telling, telling them my reasoning, um, why I think that these uh, lay associations were involved in the petition movement, uh, possibly in the writing of the petition, but for sure in the circulation um, and publicizing of the, of the petition. Uh, The other interesting thing about uh, chapter four uh, is the sort of back and forth between the liberal and the conservative press on the question of whether women should be involved in politics or not. Um, And here's another paradox uh, or I guess a, a, a new form of that same paradox that you identified uh, at the beginning, which is that uh, the Catholic press was more or less forced to defend uh, women becoming involved in politics and the contortions that they went through in order to approve of this when they, in in a lot of ways, didn't really approve of women entering the public sphere were quite interesting. The liberal press uh, is more predictable. The liberal press's reaction was women have no business in politics and uh, they should stay home and take care of the home where they're so important. So that's a kind of uh, reaction to... Um, uh, women entering the public sphere that is uh, consistent throughout the the Western world but I think the conservative reaction in the 1850s is is a is kind of a unique and uh, interesting um, interesting uh, discourse and uh, And um, it continues, as I've suggested, into the second petition campaign that I deal with in Chapter 6. But there's an intermediate Chapter uh, 5. Shall we talk about that one a little bit? So we're going in order or...
1: Yes. Yes. Let's start. Let's start with chapter five, this sort of intermediary period from 56 to 75, 1856 to 1875, to be specific. And then also to provide uh, context for maybe some of our listeners that aren't as deeply familiar with Mexican uh, history or historiography. I think this chapter is a really interesting one because it takes place in a time that is supposedly... I think, the nader of Catholicism or Catholic activism and power in Mexico um, when secularization laws are enforced, at least in the 19th century, the nader. However, you argued that Catholic lay associations are actually blooming and all over the place and have a surprising amount of influence and that women form a majority of them. So could you tell us a little bit about this time period and that'll help set us up for Chapter 6? Yeah,
0: six. I think that's a really interesting... Um feature of the historiography, which is just still not very deep on the uh, on the history of the of the Catholic Church. Uh, if you're mainly looking at um, the influence of bishops, <laughs> uh, then it does look like this is a period when the church is back on its heels when it's having to be super, Cautious When it hasn't figured out how to deal with the uh, liberal state, when it's living in, uh, in, on the defensive. Uh, but if you look at the uh, sort of more ground level, as I did, and the, uh, the fate of lay associations, they're just being founded and new forms of lay associations being founded willy-nilly during this period. Um, and in some ways, with the perceived threat to the church, uh, it makes sense that lay people uh, would uh, see would would seek something that they can do to help uh, bolster uh, Catholicism and defend the church. And uh, the f- lay associations have always been meant to be founded by. Lay people—that's the—that's the, that's the point—and <laughs> uh, so they can do this, and they do do this. But as the ex, uh, experience of the De La Perpetua in the 1840s and early 1850s indicated, it's the the women who have the most energy for this kind of work. Uh, these are still not. These are not lay associations that have a lot of financial power. Uh, they're not lay associations that are um, weighing in on the issues of the day. They're taking care of churches. They're organizing a charity, and there are a lot of new charitable associations that um, are founded during this period. In addition to the more um, uh, sort of devotional associations like the Vela Perpetua, and um, so it's it's um, it's it's work that is local. It's uh, oriented to the community. It's meant to uh, be an uh, an assistant, uh, an aid to the parish priest. It's not super visible at a national level, but if we think of Politics as that which um, bolsters or uh, uh, strengthens one side in uh, a political divide over Catholicism, then what these women were doing, uh, even if it doesn't look like Politics in a kind of narrow conventional way is entirely political. They are they are strengthening the church at the community level through their foundation of these lay associations and through the work that the lay associations do in schools, in helping with the catechism, in um, helping the priest in a variety of of ways, so the Vela Perpetua continues to spread, and now it spreads out of just that region in the center west where it had really taken off in the 1840s. Now it begins to spread throughout the country, and uh, other um, associations also develop. Uh, perhaps the two the two that I spend the most time talking about are both service organizations, the Ladies of Charity, about which my um, friend and colleague Sylvia Arrom has uh, recently published a, a book and um, the uh, Sociedad Católica, which is another um, Mexican organized service association. So sort of devoted to work in the jails, to home visits, to um, uh, charitable, more, more of a charitable profile than a uh, a vigil in front of the um, the host, which is what the Vela Perpetua was devoted to. <clears throat> okay, so um, in this context, in which the uh, if you look at the the top uh, echelons of the church, uh, you see a defensive organization, but if you look at the ground level, you see um, lots of activity, lots of energy. Uh, it's in this context that, uh, chapter six is, uh, situated chapter six is revolves around another petition campaign. Um, this one with, um, hundreds of petitions rather than dozens of petitions as in 1856. Uh, even, um, I think in 1856, the number of women's petitions were uh, was like 20% of the total petitions. Uh, now, in the 1875 petition campaign, petitions from women are more like 60% of the total number of petitions. Um, and as I say, there are, there are hundreds of them. They come from all over the the country, and they're object is um, to protest against the efforts by uh, Sebastián uh, Lerdo de Tejada, who in 1874 decided to um, uh, elevate the laws of the, the secularizing laws of the reform, to which you referred before, into the constitutional uh, into constitutional status and uh, this brought with it a whole series of um, uh, regulatory uh, measures that actually concretized some of these secularizing efforts that hadn't really been enforced that much Uh, they'd been they'd been decreed or they'd been, uh, passed by Congress, but they hadn't really, um, made their way into people's lives at least, or they had as kind of intermittently some places enforced those laws more than others. But here was a national effort to, uh, make these laws, uh, uh, work everywhere in the in the country, and the other thing that uh, that Lerdo de Tejada did that was caught, was bound up in the same effort was to um, expel, as the conservatives called it, the uh, Sisters of Charity uh, from Mexico, who had founded schools, had worked in hospitals, were um, uh, more or less beloved. <laughs> uh, the, the the liberals uh, who had welcomed the Sisters of Charity originally ha- had begun to tire of the, the sisters, as is, I guess, obvious by the fact that leonardo de, de Tejada was uh, ready to uh, expel them. He insisted that he wasn't expelling them, that he was merely requiring them to no longer live in uh, their houses since no other nuns were after the laws of the reform allowed to live in common in their houses. Uh, and it's not his fault. He thought if the sisters decided that they didn't want to live this way and that they would leave the country, but it was, a, uh, it was a huge, um, brouhaha over the, the, uh, sisters of charity, which, um, probably energized the women writing these petitions. I mean, there was, there was a lot to protest, which is spelled out in the chapter, but it's not, um, but the, the the really emotional issue seems to have been the, um, the one around whether the sisters of charity would be allowed to continue or, or not. Um, And this, this chapter, chapter six, Follows the same um, method as Chapter Four. That is, I study the liberal and the conservative press, and I um, detail the ways that uh, the conservatives, uh, by 1875, uh, twenty years after the original petition campaign, had um, uh, had gone way beyond what they were willing to do in 1856 in terms of defending women's rights to act in the political arena. In fact, um, arguing that women were, Catholic women were bound, morally obligated to enter the political arena. So they were no longer trying to tippy-toe through the presence of women in the public sphere. They were uh, embracing it. and the liberals' position was the same as it had been in 1856. Although even here, there was more of a um, more um, a, a, a sort of harsher take on how uh, terrible it was that women were leaving the house and um, uh, participating in uh, in politics. Um, in terms of linking the lay associations uh, that uh, had proliferated, as we saw in chapter five, to the petition campaign, um, I encountered the same problems that I had in chapter four. There are lots of hints. Uh, there's um, uh, there are, there's there's to me satisfying uh, statistics. Uh, about um, where the petitions came from and where there were established uh, um, uh, female-led lay associations. But uh, even more than in 1856, the emphasis was on uh, collecting uh, signatures and um, not on limiting the Impact of the petitions by saying that they came from the Vela Perpetua or the Hijas de Maria or the Sociedad Católica or any of these uh, associations. They didn't want them to be limited. They wanted, you know, everybody, as the liberals accused them of doing, signing up three-year-old. Children, female children in the household, as uh, adding their names to the petitions, and I know that this happened because I can tell by the way the petitions were uh, organized that you could see the the household, and I, in some cases, knew who were members of that household, and I know they were 3 three-year-olds, but any child old enough to sign her name was signed up so this was uh, another big uh, battle over authorship Um, uh, I think chapter 6 is one of my favorites in the book just if you because there's just a lot of really great material from the liberal press and the catholic press it's um, it's, uh, it's entertaining I think (laughs) In a way that uh, the, um, uh, the chapters that are more statistical are uh, uh, important, I think, uh, but maybe not so entertaining as the chapters on, uh, on women in politics.
1: This chapter concludes the section <laughs> on the reforma and the, the sort of pre-porfiriato. And uh, I think it sets up the third part, which is about the porfiriato, um, so differently than I think most Catholic histories of the Porfiriato start, because most of them start with things are utterly destroyed, it's a period of rebuilding, which there's still elements of that, obviously. But your seventh chapter, the first in this part on the Porfiriato, is also interestingly titled Excellent Assistance of the Priest Women and Lay Associations, 1876 to 1911. So, in what ways were women and these lay associations mm-hmm. assistant to the priests during Porfiriato?
0: <laughs> right. So this is the period when um, the church does begin uh, I mean the porfiriato is a 35 year period so early in the porfiriato the church is indeed still sort of back on its heels a little bit but um, already in uh, in Rome the um, the strategy for confronting this secular century had already been, um, uh, well-developed. And that was to, uh, centralize, uh, to, uh, make, uh, Catholic practices more uniform, to introduce new lay associations where, um, it, that were approved by, uh, Rome, um, uh, Unsurprisingly, this is a process called Romanization. And here we do, we now begin to see the papacy and the bishops in Mexico beginning to get, once again, involved in uh, trying at least to control uh, and to found new lay associations. My argument in this chapter is that uh, Romanization uh at least in the parts of Mexico that I uh, s- studied, um, which were Mexico City, uh, Michoacan, Jalisco, Durango, uh, and Oaxaca, uh, that Romanization did, uh, did succeed in uh, replacing or uh, supplanting some of the older uh, lay associations um and uh, with ones that had been approved by the Vatican that does not mean the end of the Vela Perpetua or the Hijas de Maria um uh, by any stretch but those were uh, were approved by the Vatican but the there were a number of new associations I'm not going to go into which ones they were but they were uh, particular the Vatican was particularly keen and the bishops as um, linked to the Vatican, were particularly keen to see these lay associations founded in each parish, and they were. Um, I have some uh, kind of astonishing statistics from some of the uh, parishes in uh, Michoacán, which is the probably is the best archive um, of all of those places that I named. Uh, showing the pretty much the disappearance of all cofrarias that had existed in 1830 and the presence of all of the sort of top uh, priorities of the Vatican by 1896-97. So it succeeded, and yet in a, a very important way it didn't succeed, and that is in bringing men back into these lay associations. Uh, Lay associations were an important tool of the priest to mobilize local the the community and to moralize the youth uh, and uh, to, as the title of the chapter says, assist the priest. And um, it became um, a high priority to get men to rejoin as they had during the colonial period. And in this, uh, the Romanization effort was utterly uh, a, a failure. Um, the, uh, the, the best sort of measures that I have of this come from the Archbishopric of Mexico, where uh, a, sur- a parish survey from 1896 lists um, all of the officers of uh, all of the lay associations in all of the reporting parishes. And they didn't all report, but I have a significant majority of the parishes uh, um, from 1896-97. And uh, the number of, of women um, I was uh, able to, I forgot the statistics right here, I was able to identify 127 associations that were either all female or mixed gender with female leadership, and only 25 associations that were either all male or mixed gender with male leadership. So uh, females, the, the female membership, and I won't quote more statistics on that, but Females continued to just vastly outnumber men in the the rank and file membership, and as those statistics I just read show, female leadership was just um, dominant. Um, so, uh, this is a, a period, the Porfiriato, when um, the uh, the DS government. Um, I think um, historians of this era would agree, uh, frightened or worried about uh, a possible resurgence of Catholic activism. Um, And since D.S. was ostensibly a liberal and upholding this constitution that now had elevated the laws of the reform to constitutional status, uh, it uh, behooved D.S., in his search for um, political stability, to uh, to not enforce those laws uh, any more than is was absolutely necessary to keep his own liberal uh, factions in, uh, in content, um, and uh, so there was space uh, for. Uh, This new round of uh, lay association foundation, um, lay associations that got involved in um, uh, in every aspect of community life, Catholic life. And therefore, as I uh, in the point that I made before, uh, strengthening uh, Catholicism and Catholic practice uh, kind of at the ground level.
1: Your eighth chapter picks up on this, and also is just wonderfully titled, The Men Are Somewhat Preoccupied. Fortunately, the Mexican Woman Carries the Standard of Our Beliefs, Women in Catholic Politics in the Porfiriato. And I think some of our listeners who might know something about the Porfiriato, but maybe aren't experts on it themselves, may be surprised to hear that there was much in the way of Catholic politics at all, because as you described, Porfirio Diaz is very interested in stability and not very interested in political activism. So what did Catholic politics look like at this time? And what role did women play in them, given their enormous sort of Catholic activist numbers?
0: Right. So um, I'm defining Catholic politics as that which uh, strengthens and fortifies the church at the ground level, as I've just said, uh, which is the major goal of Romanization. It's meant to... Um, to, to do this ground level work uh, that uh, is not a kind of in your face Catholic politics at the um, at the national level, for which during the Porfiriato there was really not a, a, not a call. Um, Diaz uh, himself proclaimed a policy of conciliation with the Church, uh, and this. Uh, kind of hands-off policy allowed the church to um, uh, re-strengthen itself at the the grassroots. So Catholic politics is about um, uh, uh, trying to reintroduce uh, Catholic doctrine into the schools, which it had been um, uh, removed from, uh, Catholic politics is also about sort of pushing the envelope when it came to um, uh, public displays of religiosity, uh, which had been forbidden by the laws of the reform and which uh, under this conciliatory regime, uh, national regime, Catholics felt comfortable sort of trying to push back against um. One of my favorite episodes from this chapter is the uh, celebration of the coronation of the Virgin of Guadalupe in Mexico City, which uh, was, uh, the the liberal government was assured all of the, the celebration would all take place within the church, which is where it was allowed. But of course, people had to traverse the streets to get to the basilica. Uh, And as they pointed out, they had to carry their banners with them uh, and they had their flags and all of their, uh, that which they were going to use to celebrate the Virgin inside the church had to get to the church through the streets. And the um, people who lived along the route that pilgrims would take to the basilica uh, were forbidden from showing images of Of the Virgin or images of any sort. But uh, they were not forbidden from decorating their houses. Uh, And uh, there was one house whose address I have uh, that uh, lit up uh, the uh, house with electric lights, now in 1896, 1894, possible. um, lit up his, the house with uh, electric lights that spelled out the word Maria. <laughs> so it's not an image of Mary, but it is uh, an electric light display celebrating Mary. So this, this kind of pushing the envelope is uh, part of Catholic politics, I think, during this period in which... Um, um, There's some evidence that lay associations, some direct evidence that lay associations were involved in um, sort of street uh, protests and uh, that kind of thing, but uh, also were very much involved in um, creating awesome interiors of churches and really embellishing, returning to the colonial splendor of. uh, of worship that had been not so possible during the years of economic difficulty and which now, uh, was, um, re re-in- and invoked uh, and meant to, uh, uh, wow people who came into the churches. And it's very clear that that kind of Catholic practice was, um, was, uh, the responsibility of, Uh, women and lay associations uh, as assistants to the priest.
1: The book concludes with an excellent epilogue connecting this history as a genealogy of the sort of Catholic activism that I think is a little bit more famous in the twenties and thirties and forties. But let's leave that aside as an enticement for people to pick up the book.
0: Uh
1: Um, Before we go, could you tell us what you're working on now or next?
0: Yeah. Thanks for asking. I'm... Um, I've started a project, uh, that I'm tentatively calling gender in the liberal city. Uh, mm-hmm. and it's, um, it, it may have a chapter that explores a little bit more than I'm able to in this book. The reason why, uh, Catholic associations in cities thrived and why liberal associations, uh, of women, uh, found it so hard to get off the ground until after the revolution. But for the most part, it's new material that is, uh, um, comes at the question of how uh, cities are gendered from a lot of different angles. Um, Some of them that build on research around uh, uh, the reform uh, and how the, Secularization of space in cities changed the way neighborhoods are experienced. Um, but uh, it also there's going to be a chapter on how on household interiors and how liberal culture, not so much just the laws of the reform, but liberal culture may or may not have penetrated into the way interior spaces in houses are used. There are going to be like eight different chapters, uh, all of which are a little bit, uh, a little more standalone than my books so far have been, but all kind of around this idea of what does, how, how, how much does liberal culture uh, penetrate uh, Mexican society in the 19th century?
1: Well, that sounds very interesting as a history of space and how people experience it. Mm -hmm. Well, thank you so much for your time and your excellent book. So thank you so much, Margaret.
0: Thank you, Ethan.